If someone were to ask you to represent something, say the scene outside your window, for example, or from memory, a mountain range with a meadow in the foreground, and you had access to paints and a canvas, or pencils and paper, how would you do it? Would you draw the shapes of objects in the scene first and then fill in the colors afterward? Or would you just straightforwardly paint it, seeing forms appear out of the collection of strokes? If you put such a task to a kindergartner, he might impress you. Or maybe it's more likely that you'd cringe, buy the kid a coloring book and crayons, hide the paints, pencils, and paper, and say, Stay in the lines, Johnny, for fuck's sake. Not so long ago, and analog television was still the only thing, you could come across visual noise, or TV snow as it was commonly called, on a channel that wasn't broadcasting. And if you looked long enough at it, sometimes it seemed you could almost make out forms in the noise. You might experience something similar in a room that's almost, but not quite, pitch black. In a well-lit room, the shapes and colors of the things in it seem to present themselves to you simultaneously, giving the appearance of individual objects. Whether you recognize them or not is a part of the story to be addressed later. For now, consider a lump of clay. It has no recognizable form. Some might call it matter without form, but form it does have, just not any type of form that would convey much meaning to the observer. We often use terms like lump or blob to describe such seemingly random objects. To a newborn baby, the world might appear as something like what a Jackson Pollock painting looks like to most adults. The difference is that there's hope for the baby's representations. Over time, recognizable form from what seems to be formlessness will arise and instantaneous pattern recognition will allow the child to more easily derive meaning from his or her experiences. Recall from Transcendental Aesthetic in Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason that intuitions which refer to objects through sensations are empirical intuitions, and the undetermined object of an empirical intuition is called an appearance. According to Kant, appearances have two components, matter and form. He says, quote, Whatever in an appearance corresponds to sensation, I call its matter. But whatever in an appearance brings about the fact that the manifold of the appearance can be ordered in certain relations, I call the form of appearance. Unquote. You see something, you touch it. Through sensibility, you receive an intuition, an empirical intuition. Its object is appearance. What belongs to sensation in this intuition, its color and hardness, for example, are its matter. What about form? Where do we get that from in an intuition? More from Transcendental Aesthetic. Quote, Now, that in which alone sensations can be ordered and put into a certain form cannot itself be sensation again. Therefore, although the matter of all appearance is given to us only a posteriori, the form of all appearance must altogether lie ready for sensations a priori in the mind and hence that form must be capable of being examined apart from all sensation. Unquote. Recall from episode 3 that a priori can be taken to mean independent of experience, and a posteriori can be taken to mean from experience. You might be reminded here of Plato's realm of forms, though Kant wishes to take things deeper. In the passage just given, Kant makes the most significant claim in the critique yet about the nature of human experience. Nothing in sensations directly gives you the form of an appearance, just its matter. What gives order to the sensations is the form. And it's in the mind prior to appearance, meaning prior to experience, a priori. Kant attempts to get at this product of the mind which gives form to appearances. The way we think about bodies involves concepts. 
Think of holding a stone the size of your fist in your hand. It has weight. Gravity acts upon it as a downward force, and if you let it go, it'll fall as long as there's nothing else holding on to it. You think of the stone as composite, meaning it can be broken into pieces. Concepts of force and divisibility come from the mind. We think them into objects. If we see a large-sized stone, or maybe even a boulder, we have the visual sensation, and we have the concepts we think into it. If we remove the concepts from our presentation, we still have an empirical intuition, and thus appearance, both its matter and its form. If we remove the matter, meaning sensations, color in this case, we're left with only dimensionality and shape. Kant says these belong to what he calls pure intuition, which is in the mind independent of experience. He calls it a mere form of sensibility. After proposing this, he says, quote, There must therefore be a science of all principles of a priori sensibility. I call such a science transcendental aesthetic. In the transcendental aesthetic, we shall, first of all, isolate sensibility by separating from it everything that the understanding through its concepts thinks in connection with it, so that nothing other than empirical intuition will remain. Second, we shall also segregate from sensibility everything that belongs to sensation, so that nothing will remain but pure intuition and the mere form of appearances, which is all that sensibility can supply a priori. In the course of that inquiry, it will be found that there are two pure forms of sensible intuition, which are principles for a priori cognition, viz. space and time. Unquote. Think about space. Imagine looking at two buildings separated by an apparent distance of 10 meters and both equidistant from you, say 100 meters away. The buildings are clearly represented to you as being side by side with a sizable gap in between. And they're presented as being far enough away that you couldn't hit either of them with a basketball without it bouncing on the ground first. Now, through sensibility, we have representations of these buildings, and we've heard from Kant that there must be something within the mind that determines the arrangement of the visual sensations we get from facing the buildings with our eyes open, a pure form of sensible intuition, namely space. Is space only in our minds, or is it something real that exists independently of our minds? Now you might feel that this is a ridiculous question, but let's explore it anyway. It's natural to think that all living beings in the world live separately, apart in space. No one would call you crazy for thinking that. And if this is true, then all minds in the world exist separately in space, which gives the idea that space seems to be something real and mind-independent. Kant says, however, that our capacity for sensing things and representing them, sensibility, is what imposes a spatial structure onto our presentations. He says, quote, Space represents no property whatever of any things in themselves, nor does it represent things in themselves in their relation to one another. That is, space represents no determination of such things, no determination that adheres to objects themselves, and that would remain even if we abstracted from all subjective conditions of intuition. Unquote. Simply put, there's nothing space, as a pure form of intuition, tells us about objects and relations of objects as they are in themselves meaning as they are independent of our minds. Space is not a property of things in themselves. Continuing, quote, Only from the human standpoint, therefore, can we speak of space, of extended beings, etc. If we depart from the subjective condition under which we alone can, viz. as far away as we may be affected by objects, acquire outer intuition, then the presentation of space means nothing whatsoever. This predicate is ascribed to things only insofar as they appear to us, 
i.e. only insofar as they are objects of sensibility. The constant form of this receptivity, which we call sensibility, is a necessary condition of all relations in which objects are intuited as outside us. And if we abstract from these objects, then the form of that receptivity is a pure intuition that bears the name of space. We cannot make the special conditions of sensibility to be conditions of the possibility of things, but only of the possibility of their appearances. Hence, we can indeed say that space encompasses all things that appear to us externally, but not that it encompasses all things in themselves, intuited or not by whatever subject. Unquote. Kant uses geometry to make his point about space being only the mere form of all outer appearances and belonging to us as the subjective condition of our sensibility. Think about how we gain knowledge. For example, the statement, cheetahs run fast, isn't something a person could come to know without some kind of experience, either by direct observation or learning indirectly, say, from another person. That cheetahs run fast is knowable a posteriori. That all bachelors are unmarried men is a proposition that is knowable a priori. You don't have to go and interview all bachelors in the world to find out if they're unmarried men or not. If you take it that someone is a bachelor, you take it that he is an unmarried man. All bachelors are unmarried men is an example of an analytic statement. If you know what the definition of a bachelor is, you can't think of a bachelor as not being married. All bachelors are unmarried men is an analytic statement that is knowable a priori. Cheetahs run fast is a synthetic statement, meaning that run fast isn't necessarily something one would think even if they had learned about cheetahs before, meaning you can think about a cheetah without thinking about how it runs. Cheetahs run fast is a statement that is synthetic and is known a posteriori. Kant, in Critique of Pure Reason, set out to answer the question, How are synthetic judgments possible a priori? Kant makes his point using geometry, starting with the premise that geometry is a science that determines the properties of space synthetically, yet a priori. The statement, a triangle has three sides, is an analytic statement, as it is true by definition. If you have a concept of a triangle, you can't not think the three sides part if you think the triangle part. The statement, all triangles have three interior angles that sum up to 180 degrees, is clearly a synthetic statement, since you can think of a triangle without thinking about the predicate of the statement sentence. That all triangles, in Euclidean geometry of course, have three interior angles that sum up to 180 degrees is what is called a necessary and universal truth. It isn't contingent upon anything and there are no exceptions. Kant agreed with David Hume that necessary and universal truths can't be gotten from experience. So he concluded that geometrical knowledge, which is necessary and universal, is a priori, not empirical. So geometry extends our knowledge of figures in space, like triangles and rectangles, so it's synthetic knowledge. The second premise Kant uses says that the only explication of space that makes comprehensible the possibility of synthetic a priori knowledge, such as geometrical knowledge, is the one that concludes that space represents no property of whatever of things in themselves and is nothing but a mere form of our intuition. Since geometry is the mathematics of space, geometrical knowledge is knowledge of space. And since our knowledge of geometry is synthetic a priori, our knowledge of space must be synthetic a priori. Since we don't get knowledge of anything necessary and universal from experience, meaning experience with a mind-independent realm, and geometrical knowledge, meaning knowledge of space, is necessary and universal, according to Kant, we must get this knowledge from our own minds. So a knowledge of geometry, and by extension a knowledge of space, is a knowledge of the spatial structure our own minds lay down onto our presentations. 
We end up, after all of this, with the idea that Kant thinks that space is nothing but the form of all appearances of outer senses, and is not a property whatever of things in themselves, that it's all in our heads, and many scholars have taken him that way. However, there are those who give Kant a more charitable reading, and say that Kant isn't making an ontological claim here, merely an epistemic one. In other words, it isn't that Kant thinks space doesn't exist outside our minds, it's just that we can't know anything about it if it does. Next time, we'll talk about the other form of pure intuition, time. Until then, thank you for listening.